All right, I want to welcome you this morning again to Grace Community Church. And we come now to the preaching of the Word of God as we come to worship God together. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. One of the things you may have noticed already is that we're having some sound difficulties this morning. And so if you see anybody come and tweak anything, just don't let that distract you. And Jake, you know, you do what you've got to do. I'm going to let her rip and you fix it, okay? Um, Psalm 90, and we're going to begin our time asking for the Lord's help this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name. And we come to worship, Lord. You are a great king and a great God, and you are worthy of our praise. Lord, you're worthy of adoration. You're worthy of our reverence and our fear and our trust and our love. And we want to render that to you today, Lord. We want to worship you, God. We ask for your help this morning. God, we give thanks for your word, your word that is light and life and spirit. Lord, we, we, we ask, God, that you would bless the teaching of your word this morning, that you would encourage our souls as we gather with the saints today, that you would edify us, that you would strengthen our faith. Lord, we ask that you would create and recreate within us a heart that not only hears your word, but that does your word, Lord. We want to obey you as obedient children. We want to honor you as our Father. And so we ask for your blessing this morning. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, in Genesis chapter 1, we see a reference to sun, moon, stars that God made to mark the seasons. And so time and markers of time have been in this creation from the very beginning. So it's right for the people of God to acknowledge uh, markers of time. And we're going to do that this morning. I want to congratulate you, by the way, uh, for making your yearly rotation around the sun riding on planet Earth. Happy New Year this morning. Our theme today is going to be time and redeeming the time as disciples of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that Psalm 90 is going to hold forth this theme for us of redeeming the time. And so let's read God's word together this morning. Psalm 90, and we'll read the whole thing. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood and they are like a dream. Like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed and in the evening it fades and it withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. 
By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. And we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice And be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. I think if we thought about it long enough, we could agree on a couple of things. Number one, we could, we could agree that time is a very precious thing. It's a very precious gift that God has given us. And I think we could also agree that we are prone to devalue the preciousness of this commodity of time that God has given us. Just by way of analogy, I want you to imagine this morning that you had a bank account and every day, every single day, $1,440 was deposited in that account with only one rule. The only rule is that you couldn't carry any of the balance of that money into the next day. You had to use it all that day or you lose it. What would you do in that scenario? Before I even finish asking the question, some of you know exactly what you do. You spend every last dollar of it. What are you talking about? But if we thought about it long enough and we got in the rhythms of handling it, that's exactly what we would do. We would withdraw every last dollar every single day from that account and seek to put it to some good use. Otherwise, if we didn't, that money would be completely wasted. This illustrates the time that has been given to every single one of us. 1,440 minutes every single day until the day of your death, with no ability to carry any of those minutes forward, can't carry forward the balance, and what you're doing with that allotment of time determines if you're a fool in this world or if you're numbered among the wise in this world, how you're stewarding that precious gift of time. The Bible tells us that only the wise redeem the time. 
Only the wise ponder the path of their feet, Proverbs 4. Only the wise consider their latter end. It's from the book of Deuteronomy. Only the wise number their days. And that comes straight out of Psalm 90. In other words, only the wise live in this world in a way that makes sense forever. Only wisdom does that. Only the wise. C.T. Studd famously said these words, Only one life, it will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I shall be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Realizing the preciousness of time is the theme of Psalm 90. And if you were to think about your life as a lamp, the aim of Psalm 90 is to teach us how to burn our lamps out for the glory of God. How to make them count. How to honor God with our life, with the time that we have been given. I want you to notice the heading under Psalm 90 in your Bibles. It says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And those headings in the Psalms are actually part of the inspired Hebrew manuscripts of Scripture. This is part of God's Word. We have an inspired record that Moses wrote this psalm. Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And that makes Psalm 90 the oldest psalm in the Psalter. Over 500 years older than all the psalms that David penned. And, and just noticing that, that the Psalms are obviously not arranged chronologically because Psalm 90 is sitting over halfway in uh, the Psalter. And so in the book of Psalms, we have this gift, the oldest Psalm of prayer of Moses, the man of God. And we have an opportunity this morning to learn from him, the man of God, the man who spoke with the Lord face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And the Bible tells us that Moses lived 120 years in this world. And so think about the wisdom that he observed in his journey to the heavenly city. And Psalm 90 is our opportunity to sit at his feet and to ask a elderly, old, seasoned servant of the Lord, what have you learned? How should I live in this world? Psalm 90 was penned after Moses wanders with Israel for 40 years in the wilderness prior to Moses' death. And one of the fundamental things that Psalm 90 and Moses would have us to know about ourselves as we head into the new year is that we are not God. So here's, here's your simple reminder for January 1st. It's still true. You still are not God. And I know that's really simple, but this is a needed reminder. And this is, this is screamed at us through Psalm 90. And the way Moses teaches us this truth about ourselves is he puts man in contrast to God in this psalm. And so we'll see what, what Moses says about man. Who is man? 
Man is portrayed in Psalm 90 as frail and fading. And I want you to notice how many times this is said so that we'll really get it. Verse 5. Who are you? They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes, and in the evening it fades. God's word says that we are like the fading grass. Charles Spurgeon referred to the life cycle of a blade of grass as sown, grown, mown, blown, gone. That's every one of us in the room this morning. In the morning we flourish, in the evening we fade. Moses says it again in verse 10, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. In other words, that's his general observation of human lifespans in a fallen world. And don't misunderstand, none of us are promised 80 years in this world. Verse 11, he says it again, they are soon gone and we fly away. Key word, soon. Soon we are gone. Soon we fly away. Now think of not only Psalm 90, think of all the ways the Bible states and restates and repeats this same truth that we, mankind, are frail and we're fading away. we got to learn this about ourselves. Job chapter 8 verse 9, we are but of yesterday and we know nothing for our days on earth are a shadow. Job 16 verse 22, for when a few years have come... I shall go the way from which I shall not return. Psalm 39. O Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Now think of how astounding that is. There are over 6 billion people on planet earth and the Bible just compared us to just sucking in a big lungs of of air and gasping it out. And that's all mankind right there. A mere breath when compared to God. Psalm 78, he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes away and comes not again. Psalm 144, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Think of the, the, the illustrations we're given of the sunlight coming through a window and you walk past that window and you see your shadow s- s- stroll across the wall. That's our life in this world. James chapter 4, verse 14, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Friends, this is who we are. We are a vapor, a mist, and a passing shadow in this world. Notice that you will not get these reminders from Oprah, okay, or Dr. Phil. 
right? This is God's word pulling back the veil of the true state of things, our true nature. We are transient, we are frail, and we are fading away. And the wise learn this lesson well. I don't have as much time in this world as I think I have. And I want to make it count. I want to use it. I want to redeem it. I want to glorify God with my life. Why? Because I'm a mist. I'm not going to be here as long as I think I will. And the best way for us to see that truth about ourselves is to see ourselves in comparison to God. And that's exactly what Moses does in Psalm 90. He places man in contrast to God. Moses tells us that man is fading. Man is frail. The same psalm he tells us that God is forever. Look at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Man is a passing shadow, but the Lord God is eternal. He is not bound by the finite limits of time. Why? Because he's the one who created time. Time proceeds from God, not the other way around. Isaiah 57 tells us that the Lord is the one who inhabits eternity. You live in time, God inhabits eternity. Not only is he not bound by time, he's the one who created time. Listen, just like there was a moment when the mountains were brought forth and mighty Mount Everest was brought forth into this world, just like that there was a moment where time was brought forth, where time began. And before both, God was God. Before the mountains were brought forth, God was God. Before time was brought forth, God was God. From everlasting to everlasting, He will always be God. Now one of the saddest realities of our depravity is that in spite of this contrast, and it's so clear between our weakness and God's strength, our frailty and fading away nature and God's eternal nature, in spite of that contrast, we don't see our need for God. It's one of the clearest evidences of depravity of man is that we don't see our need for this eternal refuge. In other words, our transient nature should cause us to flee to his eternal nature, but it doesn't. Why? Because there's blindness there. There's a dullness there. Think of how absurd this is. That the fading away ones in this world are so slow to run to the only one who will never fade away. How absurd is that? And yet we see it all around us and we see it in our own heart every single day. Psalm 90 attempts to awaken us from that blindness and that dullness of our need for the eternal God. One of the ways that Moses seeks to shake us out of this slumber is he focuses us in on the day of our death. 
not only does he tell us that we will die, he also tells us that our death will not be an accident when it comes. You won't get to determine your final day. You won't get to determine when your time is up. God determines that. Our death is God's doing, not our doing, and not even the devil's doing. God is the one who allots us our number of days. Look at how many times he says this. Verse 5, you sweep them away as with a flood. Who does that? God does that. Verse 7, we are brought to an end by your anger. Verse 3 again, you return man to dust. Psalm 90 is clear. God is the one who will bring about our death. And the rest of the Bible tells us why. Our physical death in this world will be the consequence of the sin of Adam entering into this world. Romans 5 says it this way, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. This is our destiny. This is the consequences of our sin. And that phrase in verse 3, you return man to dust, you return to dust, it reminds us of the rebellion in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2, the Lord God takes dirt from the ground, forms man, and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And he becomes a living soul. God names him Adam. And so from the very beginning, mankind has been nothing but dirt without God. That's all we are. And without the Lord, we are totally worthless. And in Genesis chapter 3, Adam is returned. The the, the judgment that is rendered is that Adam will be returned to the dust, the same dust from which he was created, as a consequence, a judgment for his sin. And this phrase in Psalm 90, that God is going to return you to the dust, it's a reminder to you, to every one of us, that we are members of this fallen human race. This world is not as God made it in the very beginning. This is a sinful world, subjected to futility. Notice that God will bring about our death with his speech. He will say literally in verse 3, Return, O children of Adam. Return, O children of Adam, the Hebrew word there, same Hebrew word for Adam and mankind in general. This is that summons back to Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of man. That's what we are. We are children of Adam, members of this fallen race. Just as God created us by his word, God will remove us from this world by his word. And that one word is return. The moment God utters that word, about you, you will return to dust. With a word, God creates, and with a word, God takes human life. And every birth in this world will end in a forced exit from this world with that word, return. Return, O children of man. That word will summon each of us 
not only to our graves, but to God's judgment seat. Why do we face God's anger? Why is Moses lamenting this reality that he has observed? Look at verse 8. In verse 8, he tells us that all of our secret sins are in the light of God's presence. Human sin is the reason that we face a a date with death. Human sin, our guilt before God. And Moses draws our attention here to secret sin. That we will be held accountable and judged not just for the outward things that other people have seen us do or the outward things that we have confessed to others that we have done. We will be judged for our secret sins. And I will remind you, God even holds us accountable for our forbidden thoughts, our sinful thoughts, things that we thought in our mind that we never said to another person in this world. All of those turns out that secret sin is like an oxymoron in the Bible. It's like jumbo shrimp or gay marriage. Okay, It doesn't really exist. From God's perspective, secret sin is not actually secret. Why? Verse 8. Because it's in the presence of God. That thing, those things that we do that we think are secret, they're, they're actually right before His face. Like a 3D movie playing in God's throne room. Secret sin is no sin, is no secret at all. And God will hold us accountable for these things. And he'll pour out his wrath on our sins and even upon our secret sins. Now all of these things that we've talked about so far, these are precursors, necessary precursors to true wisdom. In other words, if you want to walk around planet earth with wisdom in your heart and live a life that manifests wisdom in this world, there's some things that you need to know. Number one, you need to know that you're transient. You're not God. You're fading away. You're not bulletproof. You're transient. You're a vapor, a mist, and a shadow. And number two, you need to know that you're going to face God in judgment. You need to know that about yourself. You need to know that you're a member of a fallen race. You need to know that your secret sins are before the face of a holy, holy God. And against this backdrop of our frailty and also our guilt... Moses holds forth another attribute of God. Not only is God eternal, Moses tells us in verse 1 that God is a dwelling place. And praise God, He is a dwelling place. Verse 1, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. So, in spite of our frailty... And even in spite of our guilt, Psalm 90 tells us God will be our God. And the offer is good in every generation. In every generation, the word dwelling place here means that God is the safety and the habitation of His people. He's our refuge from all the stormy blast of this life and the next life. 
Think of the other ways that the Bible describes this reality. The Lord God is our shield. He's our protection in this world. He's our saving refuge. The Lord is the strong tower that the righteous run into and we're safe and we're saved. That's our God, our dwelling place. Now this is not the first time that Moses has merged these two themes of God's eternality and our safety. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 33, verse 27. He says this, The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. That's the safety that God offers His people. Eternal safety. He's the strongest refuge imaginable because He is eternal. He's the immovable rock. That's who God is. The saving refuge of His people. And we can have this God as our God. Moses himself entered into this reality. God became His dwelling place. If you remember the story of Moses, Moses was disciplined by God and he was forbidden from entering into the promised land. He couldn't dwell in the promised land. And you're thinking, man, Moses missed out. And there is a sense in which Moses did miss out, but Moses found a better dwelling place than Canaan, than the promised land. The book of Hebrews tells us this, that Moses, Moses received an eternal city whose builder and maker was God. Moses got God as his dwelling place. God as his refuge in this world. And again, notice that this is who God is in every human generation in verse 1. In all generations, this is true about God. In other words, from the Garden of Eden to the return of Christ in the very last day, there will be those in every generation who know God as their dwelling place, their saving refuge. Those who by faith make God their refuge. Now we know, especially from the light of Christ cast back into the Old Covenant, we know that God is our refuge through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, how do we find this safety that we need, this anchor that we need? Why don't we have to live the same way that this rebellious generation lived who dropped dead in the wilderness and passed all of their days under the anger of God and the wrath of God? Why don't we have to do the same thing? And the New Testament tells us because Jesus has come. Because God has sent His Son into the world and Christ has come to die as an atoning sacrifice for sin. To turn away the anger of God. To forgive us of all of our sins. And isn't that good news? That we can pass our days in this world not under the anger of God, but under the smile of God. Knowing God as our Father, under God's favor, under God's blessing. Even in spite of these glorious truths that man is fading away, man is sinful, but God is a refuge to his people. Even in spite of these things, 
there's the depravity and that blindness that we don't see our need for this refuge. In other words, mankind feels safe apart from God. And Moses describes this reality. He's seen it happen over and over and over again. He's probably got the t-shirt, as we would say. And he laments this reality in verse 11. And he says these words, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Moses says, who considers these things? Modern translation of verse 11 is, who thinks about this stuff? I mean, who's really getting this stuff that we're just a mist in this world, that we're guilty before God, and that God can be our refuge? Who's thinking about this stuff? Who's losing sleep over this? Whose life is this changing? That's his lament in verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger, God? And so that dullness to the eternal things that Moses has seen over and over again, he laments in verse 11. And that reality of who God is and who man is and our inability to see it, for the rest of this psalm, it drives Moses to his knees and he begins to cry out to God for mercy from heaven to intervene into this situation. And so just a note about the structure of Psalm 90 is the first 11 verses, Moses has been contemplating the brevity of human life and the judgment of God. But then in verse 12, you have this little word, so. And the rest of the psalm pivots on that little word. And from verse 12 to verse 17, we have supplications for mercy. And there's six of them. Verse 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. These six prayers are basically a summary of what we need most in this life. They're basically a summary of what it means to have God as our dwelling place in this world. They're, they're a summary of how, how we, we don't waste our life in this world. Think of these six petitions as Moses' New Year's prayer list. Number one, we'll actually cover the six in five bullet points because we'll treat verse 14 and 15 together. Number one, what should we do in light of these things? We should pray for a heart of wisdom. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Friends, this is the right response to seeing God's eternity and our frailty is that we should number our days. Now, this is not a mere acknowledgement of, yeah, I acknowledge I won't live forever. Congratulations. That's not the prayer. Okay? Neither is this a mathematical prayer of, Lord, teach me how to count. Teach me that I get 1,440 minutes every single day. It's not mathematical. It's not intellectual, merely intellectual. 
It's a request that you would be made to realize how to truly live in light of eternity. It's not just number your days intellectually like you were keeping a tab on a chalkboard, but to feel your brevity in this world experientially in such a way that you begin to live with a sense of purpose and urgency in this world. Teach me to number my days is the prayer. Note how necessary this prayer is. God, teach me this. Know how necessary it is for us to come to God like little children who don't know how to live and ask our Father in heaven, teach me how to live. Teach me to number my days. Our sinful nature blinds us to these realities. This is why we're so, if you ever wonder this about yourself, this is why you're so bent to live for the moment and that you don't care typically about the next moment, tomorrow and the day after that. This is why our nature, we need intervention. We need heaven-sent wisdom from God. This is why human beings can walk through graveyards and not be moved by the reality that those dates on that tombstone should remind us of our future dates on our tombstone and they're getting closer and closer and closer to every single one of us. It's why these things don't move us like they should. This twisted nature is why those daily, mundane, petty distractions carry so much power to allure us away from the things that truly matter. This is why, because we need intervention. We need help from heaven. Moses says we need wisdom, and it only comes from God. You need to learn this, that your frailty will not register upon your soul like it's supposed to until God stamps it upon your soul. Which is why the man of God is crying out to the Lord, teach me to number my days. This is why Jonathan Edwards famously prayed to God, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Make me feel it. And every pulse of my soul, make me feel it. Stamp it upon me. And Moses says, when God answers this prayer, we get real wisdom. Where do we get it? In our hearts. In the deepest part of who we are, God sends wisdom at the very center of our person. And it affects all that we do in this world. And so, friend, number one, you better learn how to number your days in this world. You better learn how to number your days in this world. Every single day, you're getting that precious commodity and you're either spending it on things that matter or you're wasting it away day by day by day. Number two, pray for nearness to God. And you see this in verse 13, the petition in verse 13. Moses cries out, return, O Lord. Return, O Lord. You have many needs in your life, and I don't pretend to know all of them. But I do know God's word makes a distinction between your ultimate needs and your other needs. 
And your ultimate need, the thing that you need more than anything else, is you need God in your life. You need the presence of God in your life. In other words, your highest need is not health or money or a change in your circumstances. That might be a need, but it's not your ultimate need. Your ultimate need is that you need God to draw near to you. If you don't live with a sense of God's nearness in this world, nothing in the entire universe can take his place. We were made for God. We were made to walk with God. If you don't have the nearness of God, nothing can take his place, but the opposite is true. If you do have a sense of the nearness of God in this world, you have everything that you need. You have God. Your number one priority this year and any year ought to be to live in conscious fellowship with God. To walk with God like Enoch walked with God. To set the Lord always before you as Jesus, the Son of God, set the Father always before Him. To walk in this world with a nearness to God. Now let me make some distinctions here before anybody employs evasive maneuvers. I don't want you to get away from this petition. What do you mean, return, O God? God is everywhere. And no doubt, this is a truth taught in Scripture that God is omnipresent, that there is a sense in which God is present everywhere in His creation, always. Even hell, God is there. God is there in judgment. That's the omnipresence of God. But there's distinctions that the Bible makes about the presence of God. And I want to make two more. I want to distinguish between the objective nearness of God and the subjective nearness of God for His people. There is an objective nearness that has been brought to us through the gospel. This is really good news, by the way. Ephesians 2 says it this way, that you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so really good news for you this morning. If Jesus is your Savior, you are objectively and eternally near to God. You will never be a far off one ever again for the rest of eternity. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You are near to God. God is your Father if Jesus is your Savior. That's the objective nearness of God. Ephesians chapter 2. But the Bible also mentions, and a good place to see this, a subjective nearness, a conscious drawing near to God. And you see this in Hebrews 10, where we are commanded to draw near to God through a new and living way that is open for us, through the curtain that is through the flesh of Christ, that you Christians who have all of your sins forgiven, who have been brought near to God, live near to God. Draw near to your Father. And the Bible says that we should even do this, it's mind-blowing, with boldness and confidence that we have a blood-bought right to live in the presence of God because of Jesus. 
And so I want to encourage you to make it your aim this year to pursue God's presence, to seek God's face, to seek his face always. And Christian, if you feel that you haven't lived as close to God as you want to live, pray the prayer of Moses. Return, O Lord. Come, God. Draw near to me, O Lord. Not only should you pray this prayer individually, we should pray this prayer for our church. Grace Community Church needs the conscious presence of God stamped upon everything we do. I hope you know this. I hope you believe this. That God must be with us in our preaching and in our study and in our learning. God must be with us in our worship and in our service. God must be with us in our good works and in our missions. We need God. In other words, Jesus has to dwell in this temple or we're nothing. We're nothing without him. So one of the ways you should pray for your church is return, O Lord. Have pity on your servants. Come dwell in this house. Come walk among the lampstands, Lord Jesus. Draw near. Fill us up. Now, some of you have so overreacted to charismaniac false doctrine that you don't pray this way. That you don't pray this way. You're, and your own spiritual lives suffer for that error. You ought not to let false doctrine take precious truths away from you. The fact of the matter is that God dwells in the midst of his people by degrees. Otherwise, all the coming or the drawing near language or the filling language in scripture, it's meaningless. And so we ought to be hungry for this, for the presence of God in our life. And we ought to cry out for it. Return, O Lord. Come, O God. You need God in your life. Number three, I'll take the next two petitions together. Pray for a full and rejoicing heart. And you see this in verses 14 and 15. Notice the two verbs there. Satisfy us, verse 14. Make us glad, verse 15. One of the things that I've noticed is in my own life and also observing in the church is that when we get really stirred up, man, I don't want to waste my life. I want to spend it for Jesus. I want to spend and be spent for the glory of God. Almost immediately, we begin to think about the external things that we haven't been doing that we want to be doing, or we haven't been doing them like we should that we want to be doing them like we should. And no doubt there are many of those things that we need to do. But we are so prone to run to those things and run straight past the affections that God demands of us as disciples of Jesus Christ. Satisfy us, Lord. Make us glad. These are the requests. Christian, we are to be satisfied in our God. I'll remind you that the greatest commandment in the Bible is to love God. You have a duty to love the Lord with all that you are, with every ounce of who you are. And we are to rejoice in our God. Now this takes us way past, you know, robot Christianity. 
Okay, It's one thing to be able to recite like a robot the facts of the gospel. That's one thing. And you need to know the facts of the gospel. But it's a whole nother thing to feast upon the love of Jesus Christ until you're satisfied. To drink down the precious promises of the gospel to where it feels like you just ate a spiritual meal and you're satisfied in your God. That's what God calls us to. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Make us glad. We will waste our lives if we ignore our affections. It is the will of God for you that you are as happy as you could possibly be in the gospel. That you rejoice greatly in the God of your salvation. Notice that Moses asked that the people of God would be satisfied, verse 14, in the morning. In the morning. Most likely this is a way of describing a season of life, not a particular time of day. And the way that you see that is, what are the effects of being satisfied in the morning? He, he goes on to say that we would rejoice not for the rest of the afternoon, okay? Not in the morning so that I can rejoice for the rest of the day. But the effect of being satisfied in the morning is so that we could rejoice all our days. So I believe Moses is praying for the people of God to be satisfied in God's steadfast love in the morning of their life. And you could take this in two senses. Number one, from the perspective of this prayer, every reader of this prayer, the moment they re read it, they got a certain amount of time left. And Moses is asking that these prayers would be answered speedily. However much time you got left, God satisfy them in the morning so the rest of their time they can spend rejoicing in the Lord. But secondly, and I would argue mainly, this is a prayer for the youth. This is a prayer for those in the morning of their life. That however much time they've been allotted, they're at more the beginning stage of that time than the end. And Moses is praying, satisfy them with the gospel in their youth. Fill them with the Holy Spirit in their youth. Send heaven-sent, eternal, indestructible joy into those little hearts. Why? So that they could rejoice and be glad in the Lord all of their days. This is a prayer for the people of God. It shows us how to pray as parents so that our children won't waste their youth, squander their youth. It's a reminder that youthful years are meant for worshiping and serving God, not for burning up on trivial things of the world. The Bible says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Think about how instructive this is for us as parents. What are we praying for for our kids? Well, it's not that they would learn how to repeat a, a prayer at VBS, teach them how to pray this prayer. Look at what he's asking for. He's asking for real piety, real love for Jesus Christ. He's asking for them to be satisfied in the gospel, that they would have gospel joy that would manifest not only in their youth, but for all their days. That's what we should pray for. Not only as parents, 
But as the whole church of GCC, we should pray for these kinds of childhood conversions. Youthful hearts that are satisfied in the gospel and rejoicing in Jesus Christ. Clarifies for us what, you, what should you do in your youth. You should believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. You should receive it so deeply that it causes satisfaction and joy in your soul that stays with you all your days. Number four, pray for eyes to see God's providence in this world. And you see this in verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. With these words, Moses reminds us that God is the living God of all of history. He has works that we need to see. He has power that we need to see. He's at work in this world. We can't see it unless he shows it to us. And so we should ask for us to see what God is doing in our life, in our families, in our marriage, in our children, in our churches, among the nations. We should ask for us to see the hand of the Lord all around us. One of the things that you will notice about really good spiritual conversation as Christians lean in and check on one another, a key ingredient to good fellowship or really encouraging conversations is one party having some sort of insight in, in what the hand of God is doing in their life. And they see it, they pray, and they see the hand of God at work. And another brother and sister comes and says, how you doing? And they begin to recount the work of God in their life. This is what God is doing. This is what I've been praying for. This is the hand of God in my life. And what does it do? Every time you're on the receiving end, of hearing someone recount the mighty deeds of the Lord, the work of God, the power of God in their life, it encourages you. It's real fellowship. You're seeing the hand of the living God in this world. It's also one of the, when it's lacking, it's one of the key ingredients of spiritual discouragement. Think of how discouraging it is when all you can see is your problems. All you can see are your difficulties. All you can see is circumstance right in front of you, right in front of you, right in front of you. And you can't see the hand of God. You're discouraged. What do you need in that moment? You need your eyes to see the work of God in this world. You need to be shown not only your circumstances and their difficulties, but you need to be shown the glorious power of God. Notice again the children are prayed for in verse 16. Not that they would learn some rote memory, but that they would see the power of the living God. Not only that their mom and daddy tells them about it, they see it themselves. Show your glorious power to our children. You should pray like that for your children. Number five, pray for God to make you fruitful in this world. And you see this in verse 17. Establish the work of our hands is the prayer of Moses. Brothers and sisters, that phrase reminds us not only should we serve God in this world, it's almost unthinkable. Our works 
can last forever if they're established by God. In other words, if our works are established by the, by the Lord, all of a sudden our transient, frail, and fading problem becomes resolved when God establishes our temporal works to bear eternal fruit. This is really good news. This is an amazing thing to think that you're preaching can be established by God. Your parenting. What if God were to put his hand on your parenting or your prayer life and it were to be established by God? Your mission endeavors, our mission endeavors as a local church, if God put his hand on these things, your good works, your gospel conversations, they can bear fruit that lasts forever. If God establishes the work of our hands And so notice in these six petitions that the proper response is to pray for mercy. To pray for mercy. Disciples of Jesus ought to be prayerful disciples. And not only asking for these things for yourself, but praying these things for the people of God, just like Moses. Even that last petition comes in the plural. Establish the work of our hands. Do it in this church Do it among the nations. And so GCC, this is your charge for the new year. 2023 is not a practice run. It's the real game. It counts forever. It's a precious gift that we are receiving from our God. And the good news that's held out for us is that it can count forever. It really can count forever And that's the cry of our hearts, that our life would not be wasted, that our life would be spent on the glory of God, that our time would be redeemed in this world. But we need God. We need God's mercy. Or we'll burn it up and spend it and waste every last drop of it. And so we're going to close our time this morning asking for God to help us. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning... Gladly, Lord, we confess our neediness in this world. God, we need you. We need you more than we can see that we need you. We need you in everything that you have called us to do. And we desire to glorify you. We desire to magnify your glory in every work that you call us to, Lord. And God, we pray that you would increase those desires in this church. That you would strengthen our desires not to waste our life. Lord, we pray for heaven-sent wisdom that would work its way all throughout the membership of this church. That wisdom would come into our hearts, Lord. And that men and women, old and young, would carry themselves in this world in a way that makes sense for all eternity. Lord, we are yours. We belong to you. We are your people and the sheep of your pasture. And we ask for your mercy, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.